Join us on Archetypes, a dynamic podcast hosted by Megan, the Duchess of Sussex, as she digs into the labels that try to hold women back. In each intimate and candid conversation, Megan is joined by guests like Serena Williams, Mariah Carey, Paris Hilton, Issa Rae, and Trevor Noah as they delve into the roots of countless common descriptors of women, like diva, crazy, dumb blonde, and the B word, and redefine and reclaim each identity along the way. The complete season of Archetypes is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm feminist Erin Gibson. And I'm homosexual Brian Safi. And we're the co-hosts of the Attitudes Podcast. Where we talk about LGBT plus issues, gender issues, and pop culture. Probably with much less respect than they deserve. Look, it's a wild world, and we want to help you laugh at it. Plus, we discuss everything going on in our lives. Like, what do you do when your husband accidentally starts a fire in a dumpster? And the best armpit slapping techniques to get rid of the bags under your eyes. Thanks for the advice, Mom. And of course, how to spin a wig around to achieve a brand new look. Ah, stunning. So if you're a fan of high heel shoe chairs or have a crippling fear of hot air balloons, but also believe in social justice, then this show's for you. Listen to Attitudes anywhere you get your podcasts. Lemonada. Hey there, I'm Julian Castro. And I'm Sawyer Hackett. And welcome to Our America. This week, we're excited to chat with two incredible guests about their work and their respective fields, including Dr. Elisa Bieria. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Gender Studies at UCLA. She's also a 2020 Marguerite Casey Foundation Freedom Scholar. We're going to hear from her in just a bit. But first, we're really excited to welcome back the Marguerite Casey Foundation's president and CEO, Dr. Godman Rojas, to talk about her organization's ongoing commitment to supporting vulnerable communities. Uh, we're going to touch on a few issues related to race and the economy. But first, uh, Dr. Rojas, it's great to see you. Welcome back to the show. It's wonderful to see you, Secretary Castor and Sawyer. Yeah, well, what a week it has been, you know, speaking of vulnerable communities, vulnerable people in our country uh, after the leaked Supreme Court opinion that would end Roe v. Wade. I wanted to talk to you about some of the work that y'all are doing at Marguerite Casey in a second, but just wanted to get your reaction uh, because this is what everybody has been talking about. It's going to have just a tremendous impact on the people that y'all serve. It's both devastating and not surprising. Uh, I feel like we as a nation are entering into a moment where the will of the people is so far disconnected from both the ambitions and vision of our political and economic leaders. And this is the greatest manifestation of that. I am worried, frankly, for my nieces, uh, for all of the young women in my life, in my community, in our communities. I'm thinking a lot about how the fight for abortion, specifically reproductive justice more broadly, health care more broadly, democratic participation, like there is a way in which we have disconnected these issues from each other 
so that we don't ever have to talk about the ways in which our current economic system and our current political system are failing hundreds of millions of us every day. And you know this from our past conversations, I'm always an optimist and I'm always looking to organizing as the main way that we shift political power in this country. And so for us at Marguerite Casey, it's really doubling down on organizers and communities that have been doing the work uh, where abortion has been tenuous at best, where healthcare access has been tenuous at best, where a right uh, for a woman to choose what happens to her body has been tenuous at best. And supporting those organizers, not only to sort of offer a new vision of the world, but to push and put pressure on and fight for a different future. I feel like this is a constant fight. Yeah, I think that's how a lot of folks feel, uh, you know, devastated, frustrated, infuriated, wanting to know what kind of action uh, can be taken right now to codify Roe versus Wade to make sure that the worst impact of of the Supreme Court's action doesn't come to pass. Yeah, absolutely. I do think that there's this really interesting thing right now where we have framed, and I like I say we as philanthropy, political elite, economic elite, have framed abortion as a policy issue uh, and not a political issue. And the right wing in this country has always seen it as a political issue. And so because we have been uh, focused on codifying law on the law, we have not built enough political power enough of an amplifying force. We have not, again, this like disarticulation of uh, the right of a woman to choose to the prison industrial complex, uh, the right of a woman to have an abortion to economic justice. We've disarticulated these things uh, into neat policy buckets in such a way that, one, that I think for most people, it's really hard to imagine unless you've needed to have an abortion, the impact on your life. And two, we are working at an organizing deficit in this moment. Uh, the vast majority of resources and philanthropic resources have been poured into beltway organizations and not into Southern organizing groups, not into local, municipal, community organizing groups that are bringing people along into the uh, journey of a political project where... Uh, Freedom is the animating and driving force. So I think for us, we're just like, uh, frankly, like paying catch up. So after this uh, decision was leaked, it, you know, there was a lot of lawmakers out there saying things like, you know, elections have consequences or this is why we need to, you know, vote, hashtag vote blue in 22 and all of these things that just kind of feel like a slap in the face, especially since, you know, voters delivered Democrats, the House, the Senate, and the White House in 2020. You know, we elected Barack Obama in 2012, and we were denied a Supreme Court seat that, you know, may have changed this decision. In the face of, like, these fundamental human rights being undermined, gutted, you know, voting harder doesn't seem to be an option for us. So from a movement perspective, from an advocacy perspective, where, how do you think we should be responding in this moment? Like, where do you think we need to direct the energy most? Yeah, organize it. I do think it's organizing. I think it's putting resources into organizations, at, again, in communities that where this has already been tenuous, where like basic human rights have been tenuous for decades, forever. 
and supporting people to do that. I do. It's so funny. We recently had a board meeting where Kathy Cohen and Kienga Yamada-Taylor came to talk about their work to our board. And one of the questions that came up was um, our support of GOTV efforts more broadly and the limits of GOTV as an organizing strategy. And I worry that if that is the only place where we're investing resources, where philanthropy feels safe, to invest resources in this political fight, uh, we're setting our communities up for mass disappointment. So you're like, you're describing it, right? We keep showing up. We keep, we can't cancel student loans. (laughs) Like these are things that people, that this current administration ran on. And I think it jams us up. I think it jams progressives up because many of us feel like we're always doing the cost benefit of criticizing the administration, right? but know that the only way that we can deliver to people some, a bubble of oxygen, this is not even like a freedom struggle, right? Like we're talking about a survival struggle in this moment is by fighting and criticizing the current administration. And it's, um, there's a big gap between what was promised and what is being delivered. There's a big gap, I think, in our current political system where if you are uh, a progressive in this country and believe that, you know, working people should have benefits, should get paid enough to have access, you know, to live a life of dignity, where our government, if you believe that our government should be providing all of the basic things so that people live full and rich lives like healthcare, like, you know, education, these basic fundamentals There is no real representation for us. And I worry that we will have two or three generations of young people in this country who disassociate from our current political system. And unfortunately, in this moment, that means that we have conservative capture. We are living in a moment of like white nationalist capture of most of our institutions. It's not like we're not in the run up to it. I mean, what's happening right now, what happened earlier, the reporting that happened earlier this year on Ginny Thomas and January 6th, that's not disconnected from this, right? Like the fact that like we have a governing institution that is so compromised in this moment and that we all know about, right? It's not like a secret that like only people, like we all know what happened. There's, there's, there's the communication (laughs) and that people are still governing uh, and setting the terms by which we live our lives uh, from such a position of corruption and compromise is a real problem and that there is no penalty to the corruption and compromise is like the hardest thing. It's interesting you mentioned that about about young people like not seeing this through like partisan terms. We, I, I went to the stop by the Supreme Court after the decision was announced the next day. And I would say like a good 85 to 90% of the people there were under the age of 25. And like there was chance breaking out like, where is Joe Biden? And like, they were angry both at Democrats and Republicans. And like, it seems like our party just has, it doesn't want to like capture that energy anymore like it used to. It doesn't, we don't seem to be on their side as much as we're saying them like, hey, sit down, we got this. Like, where did that come from? Where did we lose that disconnect with, with young people, with our coalitions? I think at some I mean, people always point back to Citizens United, right? So there's like that as like a, a an important point. 
But I actually think before that, right, when we started to see young people, people of color, queer people as special interests in this country and not as citizens in this country whose uh, demands should be heard, responded to, and respected. And that is generations in the making, right? That is like, again, a forever problem, a source problem for us. I think in this moment, what feels so hard is that because of social media, because the way the information moves, it is so visible to us, right? That like white supremacist capture and corporate capture are so, there's a depth of alignment and how that is informing how politicians make decisions that you can't look away from that. You can't deny that these two things, these two forces are the same forces with the same interests, which is to hollow out government in their self-interest, to limit opportunity to their self-interest, to make sure that anything that is governing is governing for the profit and well-being of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of people who live here. And that's, again, I'm going to always go back to the optimistic belief that, you know, organizing is the key. I look at Latin America, right? So like, it's really stunning to me that in the last, that this is happening now in a context in which majority Catholic nations have voted to expand and to codify abortion as rule. And that didn't come because people felt like it was like a good thing or politicians and policymakers all of a sudden had a change of heart. It happened because women and people were organized. It happened because people were organized and put pressure and fought for a different reality. And I think that that is, for me at least, the driving force of where I want us as an institution to be working. Well, and speaking of organizing, some of the most impressive organizing over the last year or so has been union organizing. Oh. Uh, Starbucks employees, uh, Amazon employees even, that have scored some victories, um, even in places where folks might not expect, including Texas, the first unionization of Amazon workers uh, up in the Northeast. You have spoken a lot, and Marguerite Casey emphasizes shifting power, particularly uh, to lower-income Americans uh, and people of color, people who've been disadvantaged. Talk to me about how y'all are doing that and how you see that in the context of, uh, you know, I would say uh, an awakening of workers out there. Yeah. It's so funny. Um, when I started, I had a conversation with a number of people who wanted to start an amazing organization called More Perfect Union. And the start of the genesis of More Perfect Union was, you know, there were limited opportunities to tell uh, stories at the intersection of economic justice and racial justice, the ways that people were winning and the harm. So naming both the victims and the victors of our current political and economic system. And More Perfect Union had a vision of actually putting out into the world stories not only of uh, the harm being caused by our current economic system, but also to name the victories, like when the victories happened, to make sure that everybody knew that they had happened, that there was a framework and model for organizing people. And so in watching the ways in which an organization like More Perfect Union has been able to capture stories 
not only of pain, but also of promise and possibility and share those with the world. Like uh, that is a part of an organizing endeavor, right? It's like seeding into people's mind that exploitation isn't the necessary outcome of work, that there could be all kinds of other, you can work and have a rich and full life, that you can work and have a life of dignity. And so for me, I'm, I'm really so excited uh, by this moment. And frankly, like, this is going to, like, this is my conflicting commitment. I am, like, so excited that this is free from the nonprofit industrial complex, free from philanthropy, that, like, we have supported, like, more perfect union, but, like, workers have come together, free from, frankly, traditional labor unions, to say, we want a better future. They've come together, fought for that future, and are um, resetting the norms, I think, for what is possible, mostly because these are workers that for generations have been told that the only uh, outcome for them, that the only thing that they're worried, they're worthy of is like precarity in the workplace. That the only thing that they're worthy of is like barely making men ends meet, barely being able to pay your rent, barely being able to take care of your kids. That's the only thing. And that they knew and wanted and fought for more is uh, lights up my heart uh, on the inside. I think we have to hold on and anchor ourselves in this very, very, very sad uh, moment in our country to these stories of shifting power. It feels like all of the the crises that we've you know faced and, and dealt with over the last couple of years, whether it be the pandemic, the the economic shock of the pandemic, the social justice movement following the death of George Floyd, you know, and now this Roe decision as well as the other attacks that the Republican Party is launching on critical race theory, you know, defund the police, whatever it may be, they've all had this disproportionate impact on communities of color. And it feels like the American people are just starting to wake up to those facts at the same time that the GOP is cracking down even harder and and doubling down on that tactic. What do you think the impact, or I guess, can you just talk about the impact of what this road decision will have on communities of color and why it disproportionately affects them? I think that there's something really interesting that happened in the summer of 2020, where we saw a whole lot of white people sort of awaken, right? A lot of people of color knew their communities were being targeted by police. A lot of communities of color knew that there was like an imbalance in the uh, criminal punishment system. A lot of white, a lot of people of color knew that police were meant to manage them and not make them safe and had like figured something out. And I'm not saying this is true for all people of color, but a good number of people of color did know these things. And in the summer of 2020, a whole lot of white people could not turn away from these things. And I think that in this moment, if on the, if on our institutional side, there's like a confluence of white nationalism and corporations, I will say in civil society, we have an opportunity to actually grapple with what it means to have a movement that is organized around racial and economic justice, around race and class. And I think that that is the biggest fear of conservatives in this country, of white nationalist forces in this country, is that white people, everyday white people who have been uncomfortable finding their space in racial justice movement or in economic justice movement, could not turn away from and were brought in to a fight. And I think that that's why they're cracking down. 
I do think we need a multiracial justice movement. So like, I want to start with that because I worry that, uh, at least in my field, one of the things that's happening is that we are so heavily focused on racial representation that we are not talking about class, that we're not talking about political formation and ideology. We're not talking about commitments, right? Like we're, and we're, there's like a, a gap in that. And we need white people, like just in the sheer numbers of the universe of this country, we need like white people to move along with us if we are going to build the country that we want. When it comes to this decision, I think disproportionately women of color uh, and Black and Latino women specifically have had uh, historically limited access to adequate health care, adequate uh, access to a safe abortion, to to safe reproductive care, period, right? Like the, sto- the number of stories that have come out in the last decade talking about Black women's experiences specifically in the medical care system are horrifying. We should be ashamed. If that is true, I think that this is a policing of that. And frankly, like, I don't see this as disconnected from the uh, work to expand the criminal punishment system. And we are already seeing women being sent to prison for uh, miscarriages. We are seeing women being sent to prison and penalized for having an abortion, right? Like that is and has been happening for protecting themselves, right? Like women are, and women of color specifically, are being punished. So it's not only the lack of the access, it's the punishment. And I feel like they're is a real need to articulate these things, to connect these things in a meaningful way, that it's not just that I don't have access to the care I need, that I don't have autonomy over my body. Uh, It's also that the state actually only wants to work for us when it means it's going to punish and imprison us. And we don't make that connection publicly in ways that I think would be helpful. Dr. Carmen Rojas, thank you so much for joining us again. Uh, it's always wonderful to chat with you, especially uh, during these times uh, that are really testing the values um, that we believe in. Um, and you're always a great reminder of where we ought to be and offer a wonderful perspective on these issues and doing great work. Uh, my last, I didn't want to say my last question was you testified before Congress recently uh, on some of these issues. How did that go? was really fascinating, Secretary Castro. One, like, as the former head secretary, I'm sure you're, like, you're well aware of the um, what feels like such uh, an important and critical space and, like, the performance art of political testimony. <laughs> yes. uh, Sawyer and has so, some stories about uh, <laughs> not my finest days with those uh, tangling with those <laughs> congressional reps. <laughs> yeah, this is where, like, I am never nervous about... Uh, are being a 501c3 organization in this space because it feels wholly nonpartisan. One, to name like the ways in which I feel like our political leaders right now are not equipped or interested or invested in addressing the issues that are facing everyday people. And so on one side, uh, it was a an entire commitment to undermining the rights of working people. People were like, oh yeah, we want working people of color to have all the things, but never did anybody say wages, 
like people are like, oh no, wages, how can wages, increasing minimum wage, how would that help? And I'm like, well, that's, that seems absurd because that is seems like the most important way. Uh, and then on the other side, a lack of ambition and dreaming uh, to actually solve problems, right? Like the most, the most ambitious thing that was proposal that was brought up was giving every American access to $15,000 to buy a home, like a tax credit. And I was like, where in America can you buy a Where? Tell me where that place is. <laughs> it's just like these days. I, yeah. yeah, totally. And that is saying that that is ambition, say, ambitious, saying that that is a thing, felt so wildly inadequate, given that in the streets of my city, people, working people, poor people have to live in tents. Like, you can't do that. We need a regime of public housing. We need to reimagine social housing in this country. And that that to say that whenever I said that I felt like people, I could feel like the tightening up <laughs> in a room uh, was so, that was what the, that part of the performance art was like the most surprising thing to me was how the capture, frankly, uh, of our political institutions by folks who really don't seem to know what is happening in rural and urban and white communities and communities of color. They don't, it seems so wholly disconnected. More work for us. More work for us, Secretary (laughs) Castro and Sawyer. The work never ends uh, for you, I'm sure. Thanks for uh, joining us. Thanks for your perspective. And uh, we hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah, same, same. Thank you. Thanks, Carmen. Well, stick with us. After the break, we're going to talk about some of these issues and a larger discussion on uh, race in America with Dr. Elisa Bieria, who's a 2020 Marguerite Casey Foundation Freedom Scholar and an assistant professor in the Department of Gender Studies at UCLA. Can't get enough of your favorite Lemonada Media podcasts? By subscribing to Lemonada Premium today, you'll gain access to fun and inspiring bonus content from all of our podcasts across the Lemonada Media network. As a subscriber, you can listen to never-before-heard interview excerpts between Julia Louis-Dreyfus and her A-plus guests on Wiser Than Me, laugh along with Elise Myers as she and her guests play a rapid-fire questions game on Funny Cause It's True, and continue to uncover new ways to make life suck less through our exclusive subscriber audio. Check out a free trial of Lemonada Premium today in the Apple Podcast app by clicking on our podcast logo and then the subscribe button. Last Day is a show about the moments that change us. I just don't think I will ever get used to this. I'm Stephanie Whittleswax, and I have had one of these moments. We all have. So let's unpack the chaos that is our human existence together. I don't believe things happen for a reason. I don't believe the universe has a plan. Each week, I sit down with a new guest to explore happy, sad stories of transformation. It's leaning far, far into the pain. That's what it is. Listen to Last Day wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Our America. Dr. Lisa Bieria is a 2020 Marguerite Casey Foundation Freedom Scholar, and she's also an assistant professor in the Department of Gender Studies at UCLA. 
uh, an advocate and organizer within the feminist anti-violence movement for more than 20 years. Uh, Dr. Bieria has co-founded and co-led several national organizations, including Survived and Punished, which advocates for the decriminalization of survivors of domestic and sexual violence. Her forthcoming manuscript is titled Missing in Action, Agency, Race, and Invention. Welcome to Our America, Dr. Bieria. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure and honor to join you all today. Well, I want to start with uh, the subject that we have been talking about nonstop and the nation really has been talking about nonstop since the leak of the draft opinion that would end Roe versus Wade. You do a lot of work in this general field uh, of interest. And I mean, I guess first, just could you give me your take on this and what it's going to mean, especially for uh, the most vulnerable people out there, people of color, low-income individuals? I mean, what is this going to mean? Absolutely. Well, the end of abortion rights, which is which is what I'm seeing happening, right, I think is part of a broader attitude by this government that ultimately sees women's lives as disposable and trans people's lives as disposable. And that's especially women and trans people of color. You know, the rhetoric of the pro-life movement, they say they care about the lives of children, but they are also the same people who support cutting public resources for children and the same ones who support the criminalization of children. Um, I was part of a, a national defense campaign to free Brisha Meadows, who at that time was a 14-year-old Black girl in Ohio, who um, killed her father in self-defense because he was um, physically and sexually abusive. Um, and she tried to call the police before she did that, and they turned her away. She tried to reach out to Child Protective Services, and they didn't intervene. And so then she had to save her own life. And she ended up facing, um, you know, char murder charges, um, devastating the rest of her life um, due to organizing. Um, I'm so glad that Carmen talked so much about organizing beforehand. Um, it's we were able to uh, uh, free her eventually, um, but without an organizing intervention, it, it would not have happened. And so I think that when we are um, watching this culture of disposability unfold, um, and it's been unfolding for a long time, I think that understanding the full force of it is really critical and the intersections of it between, re, you know, reproductive violence and sexual and domestic violence and uh, criminal punishment um, is also going to be really critical. And community organizing is really the the only way to get us um, out of this mess. Um, so I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the use of language and the weaponization of language around gender and race. You know, in Justice Alito's opinion that was released a few days ago, his conception of, of abortion providers as abortionists struck me as counter to like any sort of legal thinking around these issues. But it seems it's part of this concerted effort by the right to like, you know, demonize and weaponize the use of words to then go after things like contraceptives and marriage and all these other issues. How do you think, you know, the lay person unfamiliar with like the complexities of racial and, and, and gender constructions should take away from how Republicans talk about race and gender through the use of words? 
I mean, I think that the politics of discourse is is really important. And, you know, I know that the abortion rights movement has been using um, discourse that is more accessible, like uh, abortion is women's health care, for example. Um, and I think that the push away from that, uh, you know, from the, the side that wants to criminalize abortion, I think it it reveals a a core truth that they don't really care about women's health care. <laughs> so um, it's just a, a point that I really want to make real clearly because I just, I don't think that their claim that this is for the safety of children is anywhere near the neighborhood of good faith. Um, so I, I agree with you that language and discourse is important. It's important as organizers to make sure that it's as accessible as possible, that people really understand the ways that the issues impact their everyday lives. Um, and it's also important to criticize the ways in which the discourse, the rhetoric from the right uh, reinforces um, racism and sexism and reinforces the normalization of, of disposability. You know, many people have pointed out, uh, as you do, the hypocrisy here of this whole movement that called itself pro-life uh, and championed the unborn, but is hardly ever willing to lift a finger uh, to invest in children. Um, I found it ironic that uh, Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, who uh, spearheaded the effort to pass one of the most restrictive abortion laws uh, ever over the last few months in Texas, announced that he would challenge a 1982 Supreme Court decision called Plyler versus Doe, which held that the children of undocumented immigrants could avail themselves of public school education. And here's the governor saying, no, you know, we want to take that back. Uh, at the same time, he leads a state that invests comparatively little in children's health care uh, and in so many other ways undervalues life. Exactly. I mean, these are the same folks who oppose policies to avoid unwanted pregnancies, right? So they want to criminalize eventually birth control. They certainly have blocked wide access to birth control. So I think every single time they talk about children, <laughs> I think someone has to be right there showing them how their policies, you know, systematically create, you know, conditions of violence and exploitation for children all the time. I also wanted to to talk a little bit more about the link between the criminalization of abortion and the criminalization of surviving sexual and domestic violence, which the latter is more my area. Here in California, a woman named Adora Perez had a stillbirth in 2017, and she was prosecuted for manslaughter because the prosecutor said they found drugs in her system. Uh, they appear to have no proof that this is what caused the stillbirth. Um, this is in the blue state of California, and but it was enough to put her through hell, prosecute her, and sentence her to 11 years in prison for the crime of having a stillbirth. So, and that was back in 2017. And so this thing about um, criminalizing uh, women and other people who get pregnant for miscarriages and stillbirths and abortion and, you know, other, other choices in the context of one's reproductive autonomy has a, it's, it certainly predates 2022 and 2017. It has a long history that goes back to slavery. Right. Dorothy Roberts wrote a, she's a black feminist law professor. Dorothy Roberts wrote a brilliant book 
called Killing the Black Body, where she talks about how um, enslaved Black women were beaten. If they were pregnant, the, this, the um, person who would beat that woman dug a hole in the ground so that he could lay her face down so that uh, the beating would not damage the the fetus right inside because that fetus was was more property and you know i just i think that um that looking at the ways in which racialized punishment is part of the story of the criminalization of abortion and the criminalization of the you know the audacity to you know survive domestic and sexual violence is just such a it's like the heartbeat of the of the the debate Hey, Lemonada listeners, we want to hear from you. You know we love our sponsors for a ton of reasons, but one of the main ones is that they help us keep the lights on. And there's a really easy way that you can help us draw new advertisers and hear ads for things you're most interested in. Filling out our quick anonymous survey at lemonadamedia.com survey. By just answering a few questions, you can help us find new brands to connect with and also share feedback about show content you'd like to see across the network. And to sweeten the deal, once you've completed the survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Visa gift card. I promise the survey is short and sweet and will help us play ads you don't want to skip and also keep bringing you content you love. Just go to lemonadamedia.com slash survey. Hi, I'm June Diane Raphael. And I'm Jessica St. Clair. And we would like to invite you on a hilarious and heartfelt journey each week on The Deep Dive. From navigating the chaos of motherhood and family to exploring the depths of grief and loss, we are just two best friends who process life together and with you guys. Discover our secrets to finding joy amidst the madness and get ready for unfiltered conversations about life, love, and everything in between. And nails. We talk a lot about nails. Now, community is everything to us at The Deep Dive. We believe in the power of connection and the strength that comes from supporting one another. And we would love to have you with us. So be sure to join us every Wednesday on The Deep Dive from Lemonada Media, wherever you get your podcasts. think it's been pointed out since the decision that, you know, abortion isn't going to go away if if Roe goes away and that especially people of means are going to be able to seek reproductive care. You know, they're going to be able to get on a plane and go to another state that may have it or go to another country that may have it. Can you talk a little bit more about how these sort of laws disproportionately end up criminalizing black and brown communities and how we can make sure that people who are fighting back on this issue, who care about this issue, but may not be, you know, steeped in it as much as you are, how we can sort of convey that to the public? Yeah. Um, Well, it's just a fact that whenever states enact restrictions to abortion, the people who are most affected are the ones with the fewest resources, right? Um, You know, one statistic in Texas 
women of color are are 59% of the population but the but they are 74% of the people who are receiving abortions and you see that kind of disproportionality again and again across the states um there's a there are some some um theories about why that is it's also true for low income women um they're disproportionately vulnerable to the criminalization of abortion um, they're also women of color, black women and, and poor women are also disproportionately vulnerable to criminalization, just full stop, just period, right? And so they have a higher, um, higher proportional rates in jails and prisons. Um, uh, they are more policed, um, in the streets, in their homes and so on. And so, you know, Melissa Garrett Grant, uh, wrote an excellent article for the New Republic, and she remi- reminding us that we live in a much more powerful police state than we did in 1973 when Roe was decided, and she's absolutely right. The rate of incarceration of uh, women and trans people, particularly Black women and trans people, um, has increased exponentially. Um, 1973 predates Homeland Security, so it predates the, the ways in which... Um, you know, the, the particular ways in which the criminalization of immigrants has increased exponentially. Um, 73 predates the crime bill of 94. And so, you know, all of those laws that make it much easier to put people in cages, um, it's, you know, that didn't, that was, that didn't exist when Roe was last or when Roe was decided. And so now that Roe is being dismantled quickly, where it's being dismantled in the the context of a larger, more punitive, much more frightening police state, and in the in the shadow of the systemic, you know, in that forty years, the dismantling of social welfare, and so people, women of color, and poor women, and poor trans and queer people are much more vulnerable in many ways than they were um, before Roe was decided. So it's yeah. It's very concerning. Uh, Dr. Bieria, uh, one of the things that uh, you put out recently was a report uh, titled Defending Self-Defense. Tell us about that. I'm so proud of the research report that uh, Survived and Punished produced. Survived and Punished is a national organization, as you mentioned earlier, that advocates for the decriminalization of survivors of domestic and sexual violence. Um, We have been analyzing um, what researchers have called the abuse to prison pipeline for years. The numbers of women or people in women's prisons, the numbers of them who are survivors of sexual and domestic violence are huge. They range anywhere from 60% all the way up to 99%. So the vast majority of them have survived sexual and domestic violence. And so that has led researchers to coin the term abuse to prison pipeline. One of the reasons why survivors are um, targeted for prosecution and arrest and incarceration is, be- is because they defend themselves. It's so fascinating. Mar- Marissa Alexander was part of the research team. You may re- remember Marissa Alexander. She was um, she had defended herself from her abusive husband. She's in Florida, and she had tried to invoke stand your ground immunity from prosecution, but the the court denied her that immunity. She was subsequently prosecuted and convicted, sentenced to twenty years uh, mandatory minimum. She caused no injuries. It was a single bullet. She got twenty years. 
Um, she has since um, successfully appealed that that trial, but not not before you know <laughs> years of pain and and punishment that she had to endure. Um, so, anyways, Marissa was part of the research team for this research report, and she said that self defense uh, within the criminal punishment system is rendered inconceivable, particularly for Black survivors and other racialized survivors. And so, part of the part of the the um, patterns that we are seeing is that if survivors transgress, like expect, you know, uh, gendered norms or, you know, expectations of, of women, uh, to not use violence to defend themselves. And for that matter, to not seek abortions. Um, the punishment for that transgression is, uh, prison, is incarceration. And often years and years, as I said, Adora Perez got 11 years of prison, if you can imagine. And, you know, there's another study that shows that for survivors who are prosecuted for domestic homicide who don't conform to, quote, the perfect victim myth. So, for example, showing that they were good wives or showing that they were good mothers as constructed by the dominant culture, um, those survivors are much more likely to receive a guilty verdict. So, yeah, the report goes into why that is and what survivors have to say about it. Before we go, uh, I want to ask you, I mean, you're a uh, Marguerite Casey Foundation Freedom Scholar. Uh, talk to me about what is that? What is the program that you were part of in 2020? It is an opportunity that I could have never anticipated. It's a The Freedom Scholars Award was established in 2020 by the Marguerite Casey Foundation and the Group Health Foundation. And it provides an unrestricted award of $250,000 to leaders in academia whose research and ideas encourage us to imagine how we can radically improve democracy and realize social justice across a variety of areas. Dr. Conrad Rojas had said earlier in the earlier part of the show that she was glad that some of the organizing wasn't um, situated in, within the nonprofit industrial complex because um, that that industry um, tends to control um, how how organizing is done, and it does so um, to its own detriment um, in terms of its goals, in terms of its political goals, not in terms of its institutional goals of staying afloat, right? And those things always need to be disentangled, right? And so when I was um, when I was in Seattle twenty or so years ago, running an anti rape organization, um, it was really difficult. To, um, to find funding for an organization that was both anti-rape and supporting survivors of rape, but also critical of prisons and policing. And so now 20 years ahead, <laughs> just receiving $250,000 to do the same kind of work that I was doing 20 years ago, it's just, it's really um, overwhelming and such an honor. So that's the Freedom Scholars. Well, thank you for uh, sharing uh, part of the results of that work and perspective with us, Dr. Alisa Bieria. A pleasure to have you on. It's wonderful. Thank you. So wonderful to meet with y'all and talk with you. 
So thanks again to Dr. Carmen Rojas uh, and Dr. Elisa Bieria for joining us this episode. As always, folks can leave us a voicemail sharing the stories you care most about at 833-453-6662. That's 833-453-6662. And as always, subscribe to Lemonada Premium on Apple Podcasts. America is a Lemonada Media Original. Our producer is Jorge Olivares, with executive producers Jessica Cordova-Kramer, Stephanie Whittleswax, and Julian Castro. Mix and scoring is by Ivan Kurayev. Music is by Xander Singh. Please help others find the show by rating and reviewing wherever you listen. And follow us across all social platforms, at Julian Castro, at Sawyer Hackett, and at Lemonada Media. If you want more Our America... Subscribe to Lemonada Premium only on Apple Podcasts. What do weddings, Instagram, and toxic relationships all have in common? They take your money and you can't get it back. 16 grand, somewhere in there. Gone. There's no legal solution for the fact that you married an asshole. Welcome to The Dough. I'm X Mayo. We're diving into the stories surrounding the moolah baby. The good, the bad, and the unexpected. Yeah, we're talking about it all. The Dough is out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Last Day from Lemonada Media explores the moments that change us. Those times where you look back and say, whoa, one day I was myself and the next I wasn't. I'm Stephanie Whittleswax, and I have seen time and time again how sharing these stories can change lives. So do you have a moment in your life that changed you fundamentally and forever? What happened? How did you move through it? And how did you eventually start again? If you'd like to share your story, go to bit.ly slash lastdaystories, bit.ly slash lastdaystories. We can't wait to hear from you.